of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Bienvenido. And welcome to episode 60-something of You Don't Have to Yell. It's the bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and we are officially kicking off the 2022 midterm election cycle with our next guest, because having just one election cycle at once is not enough. Steve Cox ran as an independent for California's 39th district in the state's jungle primary system this March and received almost 5% of the popular vote against two established candidates from the Democratic and Republican parties. And he's going back at it again for 2022 with an extensive platform that's rooted in the idea that both major parties keep any real change from getting things done in Washington, which is something you might imagine I agree with. Now, in addition to having one of the most extensive policy outlines I've seen on his website, he also bears the distinction of being featured on Tucker Carlson for tweeting his wishes that both Trump and Biden die of COVID. Many paths up the mountain, folks. Now, Steve joined us with his nine-month-old Daphne, who makes a couple cameos during the episode, to discuss his disillusionment with the two-party system, his policies, and why it's the duty of every American to speak up when they see something wrong and they know how to fix it. Listen and learn from the man, folks. So there's a lot, obviously, I want to talk, talk about and a lot I want to cover. The first thing I think we have to talk about before we get into anything is the tweet. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've had a few of those, but I know the latest one. <laughs> yeah. 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 Can you, could you, could you talk about the recent one for the folks? Cause I was doing, so obviously like I do research before I talk with anyone, you know, as I started doing my digging, all of a sudden I saw you were on Newsweek and you were like all over the, you were all over the internet with this one tweet. So could you, could you tell everybody about this? Yeah. So basically what happened was, uh, Donald Trump got coronavirus and, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I'm an independent and, and frankly, I, I truly come from the position that I believe the parties are the problem. That's kind of the slogan that I go by. And, and I, so I have no love for anybody in either of those parties. I think that they're wholly corrupt and that they work for special interests and big business and they don't do anything for us really. And so with Trump getting COVID, I had this, like, it was late night and I had this funny thought in my head and that I'm like, well, they just did this debate, him and Biden. If only Biden got it from Trump, then maybe, and the original tweet was, I said, you know, uh, maybe with all the harm that COVID's done over the years, maybe, uh, you know, it comes out being the thing that saves the world um, because yeah. it, it kills both of them. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and then um, that's not what blew up, though. And, oh, and then there's a gif of Tracy Morgan going plot twist, which I think is very funny. Yeah. Um, so I was more or less making a joke, but kind of not really joking. But, you know, because I do think our country would be better off if we didn't have these two you know, awful people to choose from. So, yeah. um, you know, uh, I'm like, whatever. So, but then one of my more conservative followers, and I have a lot of conservative followers, um, cause I, I have no problem with, with anybody of, of any ideology like that. Um, 
she was like, surely you don't think, you know, surely you don't mean that. Sure, you know, you're a better person than to wish the death of, of somebody like that. And, and I said, no, I'm not. I hope they both die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that is the one that blew up. A bunch of people very disingenuously and dishonestly, uh, which, you know, it's politics, so that's a thing. Yeah. Um, but they, they, they quoted that one and then tried to, you know, made it out that I was talking about Melania and Donald Trump. And I would never wish harm on Melania Trump. She hasn't done anything to anybody. She's not, yeah. you know, she's not the one denying that COVID's even a thing and, you know, uh, refusing to tell people to just follow basic safety norms of like social distancing and wearing masks and trying to make it out to be a hoax and all this other nonsense. So like, I, I have no problem with Melania. So I was kind of a little upset that they, that they had framed it that way. But the, but then I, you know, when I clarified it, I, cause I kept getting these people say that. So then I retweeted another guy and I said, I said, just so that we're clear that when I said, I hope they both die, I was talking about Biden <laughs> and Trump. I wasn't talking about Melania or whatever. And then that one made it on like Fox news, like uh, uh, Tucker Carlson put, put it on his show. And like, then there was the Newsweek article and all this other stuff. And I'm just sitting here like laughing at it because I'm like, these people, you know, there are real problems. We are facing oh, yeah. some major problems worldwide in our country specifically. We have some major issues that we need to be handling as a country. And, and, and one of the reasons why I'm running is because I don't think that those things are getting handled. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to read your clarification, too, because I remember I found it in your Twitter profile. And it was hysterical. I just want to read this aloud for everyone. So you say, by I hope they both die, I was talking about Trump and Biden, not Melania. She seems nice. (laughs) (laughs) But she does, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sure, you know. (laughs) That's absolutely fantastic, man. And like, so let me ask. So this is October. This is like sometime like late September, October. Well, obviously, yeah. when Trump got COVID, COVID yeah. tweeted this. Yeah, it was literally the night that it came out that he got COVID. How much did your Twitter following just blow up after that? I got like 2,000 more followers and or maybe 2,500 more. And then about 500 of those dropped back off again once yeah, they weren't you, having fun with me anymore because they realized I wasn't the person that they thought I was. Or they, yeah, well, you they, gonna- they only followed me to, to, to mock me or try and make fun of me. And, you know, frankly, like I'm I'm a what's called an exennial. It's this yeah. little weird spot between the Gen X and millennials from like 1976 to like the early 80s. Oh, yeah. So I, was, I was born in 77. And so I've been on the Internet since the very beginning. I've, I've been on message boards. I, you know, I'm a and I have a very sarcastic, very dry sense of humor. And so um, when like. I take it after I take after some of these, like I go after some of these people when they say some stupid stuff to me and my, my followers on Twitter, especially have come to really uh, kind of reinforce that in me. Like they really love it that I go after people when they when they come after me and I, you know, and I do it in a snarky way. It's not like I, I'm not mean. I don't threaten people or whatever, like, like I get from them, you know, I just make fun of them, you know, I mock them and, and whatever, because I think they deserve it. You know, like when, when people are being stupid, I think somebody should tell them. Right. And, and, uh, so, you know, and that includes me, by the way, I, I'm not perfect. And when I get told I'm stupid, I, I kind of look at it and go, well, 
Yeah, I guess so. Like, uh, <laughs> like it happens, right? But that's part of the growing process. It's part of being a human being. And uh, so my followers kind of like reinforce that in me that they really love it that I that I do this. Like that, you know, there's like some, I guess there's a bunch of, I, I haven't been on them, but I guess there's a bunch of like Discord servers and things like that going on talking about how this Steve Cox guy is going to like, what they call shit post his way into Congress because I, I'm, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm just out there like messing with people or whatever. But the truth is, is that like, I, as much as I love doing that stuff, I'm I, dude, I am such a geek. I know, I know policy up, down, left and right. I know my philosophy up, down, left and right. Like we could go as deep as anybody wants to. It's just, I like to spend my time shit posting on Twitter. <laughs> well, you, look, man, I mean, it worked for the guy in the white house. So, you yeah, know, and like, did, yeah. Yeah. So were you like your big thing? And, and, and part of the reason I, I kind of sought you out too, was because, you know, you're, you're not, how do I put this? You know, you said this earlier, like the parties are the problem. Like you were, you were first and foremost, like maybe, I don't know whether to call you like nonpartisan or anti-partisan, but you're, you're definitely. Either of those I think are apt. Both of them are. So was that always the way you were? Like, were you always anti-party or was there a point when kind of like you soured on the system? Well, uh, this is a good backstory. So if you want to understand me as a person, um, I grew up in a Republican household. So, uh, you know, in the 90s, the 80s, whatever, you know, I heard yeah. a lot of the stuff about, you know, my, like my family loved Ronald Reagan and they loved the Bush family and all this stuff. And they hated the Clintons and all da 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 so yeah. I graduated high school in 1995. In 2000, I started working at a motorcycle magazine because I raced motocross growing up. Started started working at a motocross magazine or motorcycle magazine called Cycle News. It was a weekly thing that I used to read when I was little, and it was kind of a real honor to actually work there for me. And then um, in the, you know, so I voted for Bush in 2000. He won, so to speak. Uh then we had 9-11. He passed, pushed for and passed and got the Patriot Act, which violated like seven of, the, seven of the Ten Amendments of the Bill of Rights, and then he attacked the wrong country. Yeah. And when I was raised as a Republican, as a conservative, if you will, um, mm-hmm. I was always taught that, that, that conservatives believed in small government that stayed out of people's lives. And even when I was in high school, which is in the early 90s, I never understood how Republicans were against gay marriage, for example. I'm like, what's more big government? than government telling people who they can marry, right? So things like that always bother me about the Republican Party. But, you know, when you're a partisan thinker, you kind of just put those things aside. You just go, oh, you know, I know that that's probably a problem, but I am still a Republican and you have this weird loyalty. And so so I ended up um, going to a lot of the races and becoming a photographer and journalist that covered the motorcycle races. And I hung out with this guy named Steve Broon, who was a photographer at this series. And that guy was so far left. He, he passed away a few years ago. He was one of my best friends I've ever had. He mm-hmm. was so far left. He, he like, he, he ended up in FBI records or having an FBI record um, because he supported the Sandinistas. Oh, Jesus. Right? All right. So that's how far left he is. Right. So let me just clue people in. Sandinistas were the communist faction right. fighting in the civil war in El Salvador, just for those again, Correct. who were born post 1980. Like he actually flew down there and like supported him and stuff. Like, he, you know, that's how far oh, left really? he was. Yeah. But he's like a brilliant man. He was, he's an engineer after he left the motorcycle industry as a photographer, he was a NASA engineer. He literally worked at NASA as an engineer. So like, this is a very smart guy. Right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, 
you know, so what would happen is I would say some like right wing thing that I believed. And then he would like a lot of times with some snark in it, but we loved each other as people. And, and, you know, so I, I never questioned his loyalty or anything, but he would, he would just hit me with a counter argument to that. And I would argue against him, but like, you know, depending on the issue, it, it would be weeks or months or even years. Yeah. And, and then something would happen. And I think back to what he said and I'm like, God damn it. He was right. Like on this thing, you know, whatever yeah. that thing was. And, and this kept happening. Whereas like this, uh, he would plant these seeds and then they would, you know, they would sprout when something, you know, the world would align and, and those things would sprout. And, I, and uh, you know, it really got me questioning a lot of stuff. And, and so I had already left the Republican Party. I left that party in 2003 or 2002, 2003, somewhere in there over the issues I just mentioned, the, the Patriot Act and all these things, because I w- thought they went against the party. But then I started sort of being a little bit more favored to like, I still didn't like Democrats. So, um, you know, for the longest time I hated the Democrats, but, uh, but I, but I, uh, you know, I didn't have the bias for Republicans, um, that much anymore. That's my baby in the background, by the way. Now so that's, that, uh, that, um, that's, I also want to cite that, that Steve is doing this with a nine month old in the house, which is, yeah. Like, she's my she's my pride and joy. She's everything I care about. For you, for like non parents out there, like it's like the equivalent of taking a five mile run with a cinder block in your backpack. <laughs> so you know he's you're 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 doing you're doing the Lord's work here, man. Oh, so man, sorry. I, I love I love my baby so much. There's oh nothing, yeah, you know, like I, it's it's it, it's the coolest thing I've ever done. In is my life. is this is your daughter? This is your first, right? Yeah, yeah. All my right. my wife. I'm 43. My wife was 40 when she was born. We gave up years ago, and then all of a oh, sudden it happened. So congrats, it's really, man. Yeah, congrats. so we, we got this perfect little beautiful little girl. And, yeah. Um, but but to go back to the story, so I, I had um, you know he kept planting these seeds, and and you know it just kept kind of making sense. And it wasn't, you know, and I'm not a communist. I'm not as far left as him even now, but, but, you know, I'm, he definitely broke me of the right wing streak and the, and the, um, and so what I started then in 2004, I voted for Kerry, but I didn't really like it. You know, I was kind of like, you know, just trying to get Bush out of office. And then, and then in 2008, I gave 500 bucks to Barack Obama's campaign. Cause I was like, man, we're going to get healthcare fixed. We're going to get out of these goddamn wars that we've been in. For so long, all the stuff that he promised, right? You know, the 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 he was gonna he was gonna um, you know add more protections for whistleblowers and federal whistleblowers and all this stuff. Uh, he was gonna you know stop with the you know the criminalization of marijuana and things like that. And so all these promises he made, and then and then he gets into office with my five hundred bucks, which you know it makes it a little more personal when when they don't do what they say, and um, at least for me. You know, then he gets into office and to run down some of the things he did in his first four and a half years in office, he he committed more uh, DEA raids against state legal marijuana businesses than had been performed in the previous 12 years to him getting into office. He he increased the federal funding for the militarization of police in his first budget by like five times what, what, what it was before. He, he, he went to war against whistleblowers and ended up jailing by the end of his term. He ended up j- charging and jailing more people under the Espionage Act than all previous presidents combined. He sold more weapons to foreign nations in his time in office than any president since World War II. 
he obviously didn't address the healthcare thing because that's still a mess and it only made it worse for me and a lot of people like me. Um, you know, and we're still in the wars. He actually expanded the wars from two two theaters to seven by the time he got out of office. And I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. So by the fourth, by, by 2012, I didn't even vote. I was like, I was like, what am I doing? Picking colors? Obamacare was Romney care in Massachusetts. And so now I'm picking between the guy that, that made the original shitty healthcare that we're now using um, and the guy that made a, the new version of the same crap. And I'm like, why? What do I care? Yeah. You have the closest political journey to mine out of anybody. That's who interesting. I've known. Yeah. Same thing with me. Raised diehard Republican, Reagan household. Actually voted for McCain against Obama, believe it or not, because yeah. I, I think American history would have been vastly different if Bush hadn't crowded McCain out of the Republican primary back in 2000. Sure. Okay. That, that, that's a story for an entirely different day. Yeah. But, but 100%, like just effectively, I, you know, different from you, I never went down. I actually didn't vote Democrat until 2016, and it was really more a vote against uh, Trump because yeah. um, I just was just disgusted by him but yeah i voted uh, third party in 2016 and that's what i continue doing well and you know what i mean you live in california i live in massachusetts like really we can vote whoever we want i mean i would i would honestly do it wherever i live oh really okay oh absolutely yeah Yeah. so a couple years ago i i really started digging into this issue of divisive partisanship just realizing we two people who disagreed couldn't even converse about the same reality so like you and your buddy who was effectively like i mean i don't want to label him a communist but you're right that's basically he was a communist yeah Yeah, he's like far left you and he could have a conversation and basically agree on the same facts and or or say like this is the same world we inhabit people just like now it's like people have two separate factual universes and so I dug into it and I started looking into the polling and it's really fascinating because if you look at what people consider their number one issue going into a presidential election, the three top issues, every election, healthcare, the economy, education, those are always the three top issues. The minor issues are the ones that everybody argues about. So like immigration, abortion, gay marriage, all that stuff, you would think that would take up a sizable chunk of space. It doesn't, but it's just like... People care generally about the same things, but the way the parties differentiate themselves right. isn't by fixing the stuff you care about. It's about fighting for these little issues that nobody's ever going to agree on. Well, because the things that the reality is is that both of those parties work for the exact same people. They yeah. work for they work work for the moneyed interests and the spe, you know the big the big corporations, the moneyed <laughs> interests, the wealthy people that pay them off. There's that that Princeton study that I don't know if you've, you're aware of it, but um, a lot of people are. But there's a study that studied, I think, I'm, I might have the date slightly off and I might have the numbers slightly off, but it's very close to this, which is, it was something like 19, um, they studied all the bills and issues and things, public issues, from like 1981 to 2002, something like that. And during that period of time, it was like almost 1,800 different issues, right? And they, they graphed. Um, the, how the political elite and the wealthy, you know, believed about that issue and what the regular people believed about that issue, um, on percentages of zero to a hundred. And then w- at what likelihood would each 
sort of subset of people get their way within our government. Like our government would actually do something about this issue for them. And what they found was there was a direct correlation for the wealthy and the political elite and all these other very, you know, the, the powerful people in our country where from zero to a hundred percent support was also like basically zero to 100% likelihood that something would get passed through Congress to address that issue in their favor. But for, but for regular people like us, um, the line was dead flat at just about 20% of the time. Dead flat, no matter if it was 0% or 100% of the public who supported a particular thing, it was still 20% of the time dead flat that we got their way. And what they also figured out was that 20% of the time, time almost perfectly lined up with what the wealthy wanted. So basically when we agreed with the wealthy and the elite, then we got our way, but that's the only time it happened. So um, the truth is, and they've literally scientifically proven this now, the truth is that the wealthy or, or that, the, the, that our Congress does not work for us, period. They don't. They don't care. They simply don't care, and they've proven it. There's no better mask-off situation, as far as I'm concerned, than this COVID thing, because I predicted this on my Twitter account. Here's another thing. Um, by the way, I also predicted Trump would win, by the way. I didn't even vote for him, but I predicted he would win. Everybody thought I was crazy. I bet 12 different people 100 bucks each, um, and, and they all were very surprised when I asked them to pay me $100. Um, you know, I mean, most of them just blocked me on social media. Or, they didn't, or you, did, they, you didn't even get a chance to collect. They didn't get well, No, like I, about half of them paid up. The other ones, oh. you know, yeah. All right. And, and the ones that paid up, I had them donated to like dog shelters and stuff. Like I wasn't, oh, right. I, I wasn't trying to take anybody's money. I was just trying to prove a point. Yeah. I predicted on my Twitter where I was going with this is I predicted on my Twitter, the Democrats are going to um, basically try and make us miserable um, because our misery, they're going to try and hang that on Trump's neck because that's the way that they think that they could beat Trump with Joe Biden is to make us miserable and blame Trump, right? So they're basically using us or using our misery for their political gain. And there's never been a more masked off type of thing to show exactly what these people are about than that, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's right there. You can watch it happen. And, and, and that's exactly what they're doing. And at the time I got so much blowback for that. Like all these people like, Oh, that wouldn't, they would never. And I'm just like, you guys don't even know what's going on. Like you just don't even pay attention. I don't know what it is, but you know, there is something about being an independent and declaring yourself an independent. And it still took me years after doing that. Cause I've never been a Democrat. I've never joined another party after I left the Republican party. Cause I realized how I wanted to, to side with the Republican party, even when I disagreed with it, it was making me stupid. So I didn't want to be stupid anymore. So I became an independent. And what it, what over the course of time, what it led to was me understanding, like it's more than just a title or a lack of party affiliation. Being independent is actually a, a way of thought and a way of, of being a person, you know? And once you, once you can declare yourself an independent, I think there's actually power there as an individual and as a group that you can, that you can start to see the world more for what it really is, you know, rather than through the shades of whatever your blue or red glasses are. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, there's so much, there's so much there, man. And it's like, and, and I, I feel the same way, which, which is, 
it can be so difficult to have a conversation about an issue with a number of people because if you take a position, you are automatically in their eyes. If you take a position contrary to them, you are automatically either red or blue. Oh, so, of course. Yeah, it's know, amazing. It's amazing. Right? And, um, and, and people just can't kind of dewire that. And so, but you know, they have the, to. oh, 100%. Like one of the big things, one of the big things that I push and I've been pushing on this podcast is the concept of, of proportional representation in the house. The idea that the party shouldn't be able to carve the districts, you know, the yeah. idea, you know, and that's like the big thing. But I say, exactly. But I yeah. say proportional representation and anybody on the right flips out because they automatically think electoral college because that's just how they've been conditioned. Right. And so it closes you off to so many different ideas, you know, um, I have, a, you know, this is kind of a weird question, not directly related to you, but I have to ask you this, you know, Bernie Sanders got, yeah, clearly, clearly had the nomination take stolen from him in 2016, right? Democratic Party pushed him out. Democratic Party kind of crowded him out this time. Do you? It, it seems so weird to me that the Republican Party was the one that just got overtaken by this super popular, yeah, effectively funny, radical. Huh? How did? Do you have any idea why that happened? Because it doesn't. Yeah, make because a, I can't. I can explain it perfectly, and it's yeah, really please. simple. It's a really simple answer. The Republican Party, ironically, is actually more Democratic than the Democratic Party is. I uh, yeah in pri- in the primary, you mean? Like yeah, the yeah. Process. I mean, yeah. They, they listen to their voters. Yeah, you know, they listen to where the groundswell was, and they let it happen. There was, you know, there wasn't this this machine behind the scenes that would stop Trump. I think they would have if they could have, or you know, if they if they had that sort of machine, but like. The Democrats have these superdelegates, right, um, in their primary process, and 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 Republicans don't. I mean, superdelegates are already anti-democratic. To have one person who has the value of a vote that's you know many many times that of a regular person, just because of their time in the party or whatever, and that that thing was put into the Democratic Party specifically to prevent grassroots candidates from taking nominations and power away. From established Democrats, and by established Democrats, I mean people who have brought in money over the course of however many years to the Democratic Party. They don't give a shit about you and I, and like, or even, or even like whether somebody called themselves a Democrat. They want to know how much, like, what have you done for us? How much money have you brought into this party? And they literally have in the Democratic Party. They literally have. Um, what's called the Rolodex check uh, back in the day, but now it's probably just a cell phone check. But it's just a matter of like, can you raise $5 million just like calling some people on your phone right now? Is that a thing you could do? Right. And that's how they determine who they're going to support, you know, in a, in a given race or anything like that. The guy that won in the district I'm running for in 2018, I ran the first time I got my ass kicked and I had no idea what I was doing. And again, as an independent, but again, you know, sort of, what happened was, if I can get into this a little bit. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, what, what happened in, is, you know, my dad, the big, the big kicker was my father has been fighting cancers having to do with Agent Orange exposure in Vietnam um, since uh, probably 2007. And um, he's had five different cancers to this point um, or five different, you know, cancerous, uh, whatever, three, three different types of cancer, five different. Um, instances or whatever. He was the first person ever to be cured of the cancer that he had, the main one, um, or, or, you know, not cured, but put it into remission. 
And, uh, you know, he had to fight the VA tooth and nail just to get them to cover anything. And then on, and then as things went on, um, to get his disability was a whole other thing. And then after he ended up putting these cancers into remission, um, he, uh, um, the D the VA, and this was under Barack Obama when Barack Obama was president, the VA cut his disability in half and said that he's less disabled now because his cancers are in remission. And I'm just like, you sons of bitches. Like you, you guys give so much money, so much extra money that they don't need to, to the, to the defense, you know, department of defense and the, and all this stuff, all, Boeing and, and all these other, you know, defense contractors, all this other stuff. And you're going to take $1,200 a month away from my father who actually served his country, volunteered and fought in Vietnam, which, you know, he doesn't agree with the war anymore. And I, I don't either. But the point is, is that he did it. He stepped up when his country asked him to. And he went and he fought. And, and they're going to they're gonna step on him like that. And I was just so pissed off about that. And, and, you know, already had the realization about the parties and all that back in 2012. And I'm just like, you know, what ended up going through my head after the 2016 election was over and I got that one right, like I called Trump winning and I started to really understand that maybe I was onto something that other people just weren't onto yet, right? That, I, that maybe I could, I could make a change or I could make a difference because I saw something. And I feel like as a society, um, if you want to call yourself a member of any society, if you feel like you have answers that other people don't have to the things that are causing us trouble in this society, it is your job to step up and try to bring those answers to fruition, to try and actually fix that stuff. That's your job. I think that's, that's, that's a given thing, no matter what country you live in, no matter it's, it's a part of a society. If you're in that society, I think that you have that responsibility to step up and try to do something right. And so I've had, I've had many people, you know, even people that knew me and know me who have accused me of being arrogant and all this other stuff and, uh, you know, unqualified for the job. And I'm like, is anybody in DC qualified for that job? I mean, look at the shit job they do. You like, it, it oh, takes a, a lot. To, right. You know, come on. Give me so, a break. So I'm yeah. just like, I'm like, this is nonsense, but you know, I've had these talks, but the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, I just felt like, after the 2016 election, I was driving to a race in, in like May of 2017 um, up in Sacramento. I was driving up there to shoot the race, you know, photography. And, and um, I just, I started thinking, I, I think when I drive a lot and I was, it's a long drive. It's five, six hours. I mean, five hours, how I drive, you know? And, and, uh, um, but I, I was just thinking a lot and I just had this thing come, come over me. I was like, you know, at the time I was 40, I had just turned 40. And I was like, you know, what am I going to, like when I'm 50, when I'm 60, when I'm 70, like how long am I going to wait around to find a person that I could support to actually really support to, that I think is going to have my best interests at heart and is going to try to do the right thing for me and for my family and for my country and for the people of this country. And <clears throat> like, and how old will I be? you know, when that person comes along and then what if they don't? Yeah, man. Like, and I, I think the same thing. I mean, like for me, it was 2018. It was 2018. It was the death of John McCain, who was really what I saw the last person, 
the last person of power or the last person of consequence who held country over party in my mind, yeah. um, agree with him or disagree. Sarah Palin was an odd choice, but you know, everybody, well, I think he was banking on, uh, on, um, women yeah, coming like, to him after, after oh, Hillary lost. Yeah. Obama. Yeah. I mean, the chips were stacked against him, you know? Yeah. And so, so he, um, but, and I remember thinking to myself, if people don't make their voices heard, and they just kind of let it happen or wait for somebody else to come along. Yeah. You know, you're going to get what you're going to get. You're going to get yeah. the same people. That's right. And yeah, you know, I, I want to jump back to something you said here because it explains a ton about like your your platform and uh, you, just to throw something out to the folks listening. So if you visit voteforcox.com, you've got a, a fairly extensive like review of a number of different issues. And the thing that was jumping out at me a ton was how much focus you have on the Department of Defense and on yeah. veterans benefits, veterans affairs, and yeah. all that stuff. Um, like, for example, one of the one of the interesting things I th- I saw out there was the way you you take the stance that veterans shouldn't be paying shouldn't pay taxes effectively. Like yeah. once you've served, is that everyone? Is that like those who served in war? You no, no. I said uh, in war, in battle. In war. Yeah, um, okay. Because my my thing is is you know. I grew up with my father having, you know, he was well out of the Marines when I was born, mm-hmm. but like, you know, he would wake me up to Reveille in the morning. And, and, oh, you know. right. So, you know, yeah. that's the kind of upbringing I had. I, I had to call my dad, sir, and okay. my mom, ma'am, and, and like, you know, very uh, strict, which, you know, that's not really me. Like, I'm not that type of guy. I'm a very loose kind of guy. And my dad and I have had a lot of conflicts because of our, our personality differences that way. But, Um, but you know, I love my dad and, um, you know, he, I grew up seeing the effects of what the war did to my dad, even though he came home physically Mm -hmm. whole, you know? Yeah. But one of my favorite photos I've ever taken as a photojournalist, I I took my dad to the wall for the first time. He'd never been to the wall in DC and I, there's a race back there at Bud's Creek, Maryland that I was going to. So I brought him along with me. Um, in 2007, uh, right after he get, had his cancer diagnosis, all that, maybe it was 2008, but I think it was 2007. And, um, you know, he found one of his, one of his friends names on the wall and just broke down crying. And I'd never seen my dad cry when he wasn't drunk. Like I just never did. And, and, um, you know, I took a photo of him, um, with like the Washington monument in the background and all this stuff. And it, he didn't even know I took the photo. Um, but, but I was just watching and I'm standing there watching my dad break down. And I'm just like, wow, you know, like my dad was the strongest guy. I, I literally watched my dad knock guys out at the gas pump a half a dozen times. You just, <laughs> yeah. just said a cross word to him and my yeah. dad would lay them out in the middle of the pavement. And like, this is the toughest son of a bitch you could ever imagine. And I'm like watching him just ball his eyes out. And I'm like, Wow. You know, like it's just blew my mind. And until you see something like that, I think it's pretty hard really to understand this stuff, you know. And, and, and so I looked at it and I'm like, you know, with him losing his benefits on top of it, but I'm like, why the fuck was he? Sorry. Not nah, go for it, man. <laughs> but why was, he, why, yeah. why was he, why was he paying taxes this whole time in the first place? Like he gave up so much. He, he paid so much of his of his soul, if you want to call it that, his, yeah. of his life force 
to fight for his country in that in that godforsaken war and and to have him you know not only have them take that stuff away but on top of that like he should have never had to be paying taxes in the first place he paid he paid and and you know so i think there's a double edged sword to that i think that um you know insofar as taxes fund uh you know federal spending which they kind of don't but the way that they presented they do and you know so to me it's like if we could get if you know my my proposal is the first hundred thousand dollars a year that a a, a a war veteran, a battle veteran, you know, somebody who served in combat, um, the first hundred thousand dollars a year they they make for the rest of their lives should be tax, do federal income tax free, um, and uh, and then after that, like they'll you know pay like normal, right? Like it's okay. I'm not trying to like if Jeff Bezos from Amazon served in in the in the army, I'm not trying to give him a free tax break for every dollar he makes, you know. But <clears throat> but I think a hundred thousand is a very reasonable number. It's a pretty high number. And then I think there's a second part of that that it becomes a a bit of a um, a disincentive to go to war in the first place. You know, like if the government knows that they're going to lose tax revenue from everybody who goes. Um, and actually fights, I, I feel like that that can only be a better thing, right? Like to actually try and keep them from using our military as the first choice in any negotiation. Yeah, I mean, I always thought the thing I've always been a fan of is bring back the draft, no exemptions. I know, you know, I've brought just, that up to people and they get pretty upset at me, but I, I understand what you're saying. It, and, yeah, it doesn't uh, make I, any I like. It. Look, there are kids serving in Afghanistan who were who were born after the war started there's gonna uh, soon there's gonna be somebody dying over there who was born after 9-11 exactly that's very soon exactly that's awful we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment with steve cox hope you're enjoying this episode and wanted to take a quick break to share some additional follow-up resources uh, a summary of today's episode and a link to the Princeton study Steve mentioned can be found in the show notes on ydhty.com. Uh, just visit the homepage, click the link in the upper right corner that says episodes. That's where we keep the episodes. It's a novel concept. You can also learn more about Steve's platform and candidacy on voteforcox.com. That's with an X. And be shitposted on by the man himself on Twitter by connecting with at real Steve Cox, also with an X. Lastly, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit YDHTY.com and fill out the contact us form at the bottom. Or you can reach me on social media via the hashtag YDHTY. It goes without saying I would love to hear from you. And now, back to Steve. Jump into another aspect of your, you know, your platform or your belief system here. You know, the other thing about it is there is so much, so much profiteering in the defense budget when, you know, a great example and and one that I cite constantly uh, is the M1 Abrams tank. So oh, no, I know this. Story. You know this. You want oh, to tell it? You're the, I, I actually you're, cited it on my on my site, but yeah, like, you go there's, for it, there's man. A, the, there's a factory in in like Ohio or something where yeah. one congressman always makes sure that this bill gets put into whatever the NDA Jim Jordan's district. Um, yeah, that's right, and and so he always makes sure that that thing gets funded, and so these people are building tank parts for tanks that that 
get, end up getting shipped out to places like Fort Irwin out here in California by me, where actually my brother-in-law works there, but they get shipped out there where they just rust out in the desert because the, the, the tanks aren't actually being used anywhere. You know, and that's one of the things I look at and I'm like, look, I'm not against government spending, but I am against government waste. And that is government waste. We could easily retool that exact same factory and keep all the same people on board and build solar panels and just hand them out. Just hand them out to, 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 to American citizens who need solar panels on their houses or whatever. Just hand them out. You have free energy and, and we would spend, you know, we could spend the exact same amount of money, but at least we're not just throwing it out in the desert and letting it rust. It's nonsense. It's complete idiocy. And to, you know, one step farther than this, I know somebody who was a uh, um, who worked at a lumber lumber uh, yard as a salesperson, and every year Ford Irwin it gets this big order of lumber in like uh, August September because their their uh, fiscal year goes October first to September thirtieth. Um, so they get this big order of lumber every year, um, and sometimes more than one. And then like after about a a dozen years of this happening, the salesman went out with his driver because his driver was like, dude, you got to come see this. Right. So he drives out there with his driver to drop the, the load off of wood. They dropped it out on this flat pallet of, or this flat, you know, uh, area of, of dirt right next to all the other orders that they had ordered over the years that had rotted out in the desert because this, the, the fort is just trying to spend the budget money so that they don't get their budget cut the next year. Oh, that's so this is just, let's see, November it was. Yeah. November, uh, every episode of this podcast was dedicated to the military and military spending. Yeah. And there was a study done by McKinsey on adding efficiency to the military. And they said just by consolidating their processes across all four branches because right now every branch has its own procurement department every branch has just a, yeah they were saying i think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 billion yeah could be just with that just just doing that could be saved or not yeah. 600 billion i'm sorry 60 billion well, could still. be saved yeah but 60 billion could be saved just yeah, by one of my ideas is to is to formulate a, a way to to reward um Anybody taking government money, you know, any departments, anything like that, reward them for the amount of money that they save us. Um, so when they don't, when they don't spend their whole budget, don't cut their budget, um, but but like give them a percentage back, like as a bonus or or something that's like a, an additional thing, like give them an incentive to not waste the money. Um, I, that's another thing. But but the thing is, is that's not going to happen. That's that's the shitty part about this is that that's not going to happen because. You know, all of these, all the people in D.C., the, the, the elected representatives um, that, that supposedly work for us, um, those people, like, they have no interest in cutting any of that money because, you know, that those are all, uh, you know, government workers and, and all this other stuff. That, like, they, they're not interested in doing any of that stuff. They, you know, I mean, you can see it in that first COVID package where we got our, our big old $1,200 checks. Um, you know, the amount of money that went out Honestly, just since the start of COVID, and this is a real number you guys could look up, um, but when they could have been giving us, and what I think they should have been doing was giving every American $2,000 a month um, and just let you stay home. And that means that that would have meant that the people who had to keep working, like in, in you know, the, the necessary workers, the um, like in grocery stores and hospitals, 
those people would be getting another $2,000 a month on top of the money that they're making, right? So they're being rewarded too, um, but you keep the economy whole. The amount of money that they've given out, Congress has given out to private companies and everything else. I'm talking about free money. I'm not talking about um, uh, loans and things like that. We're talking grants, free money, okay, that, that has been handed out to big businesses, small businesses, and whatever, but not to people. If you were to break that down by household in this country so far, it's over $30,000 a household. So think about if instead of giving that to all these companies and all these other you know, handouts, because that's really what it is, is it's socialism for the wealthy. It's like they want rugged capitalism, you know, an individual capitalism, whatever, for the poor, and they want socialism for the wealthy. And, and, um, and why wouldn't they, right? If you're wealthy, why not take free money, right? But, but um, that $30,000 per household, if they would have actually distributed it like that, most of those businesses would still be fine because people would be spending their money there. Like George Carlin is one of my, one of my idols, my, my top idol in thinking. Like he is my top thinking idol of all the people I can pick. But it's George Carlin. And he does this whole bit uh, back in 1992. He did a bit about um, you know, how he sees the social and economic classes in this country. And mm-hmm. his thing was he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, um, the rich get all the money, pay none of the taxes. Uh, he says the middle class pay all the taxes and, and you know, uh, get, you know, just enough money to live or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then he says, and the poor, the poor are just there to keep the middle class people showing up at those jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like as a warning, as a warning. Like if you don't play the game, if you don't play ball, you end up like them, Right. And that's the society that we've created. And it's only gotten wor- way worse since 1992, frankly. Oh, yeah. Um, way, way worse. So, you know, the minimum wage w- was effectively much higher then. And, and you know, healthcare was much less expensive. College was much less expensive um, back then. And now, you know, we're at a point where I think we're just at a tipping point here where where there's a lot of people on both sides politically, ideology-wise, they're left, right, whatever. But they're just – they know that things don't add up. They know mm-hmm. that things aren't working the way they're supposed to, and and they're sick and tired of, of uh, you know of it not working. So so they're out there in the streets, and and as far as I'm concerned, I think both of those political parties they sit there in D.C. and I think they more than welcome any of this strife and anybody who dies of it at any of these protests or anything like that. Like it's awful. It's a really it's a really bad situation to be in. You know where mm-hmm. our country's falling apart like this. And our leaders have gotten no closer to doing anything about it. They mm-hmm. don't care. They really don't care. And that yeah. really pisses me off. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, I, you hit on something that I, I've, I've thought for some time, which is that when a society or when a society ceases to care and ceases to produce for the majority, yep. people start going a little nuts and people start yeah. doing crazy shit. And I think it stems from, you know, if you go way back to when this country was founded, right? Yeah. Um, it was rightly or wrongly, it was uh, effectively you against the world, you know? So if you look at like where I grew, you know, where I grew up in Massachusetts, I'm actually- Yeah, you were two, the center of the, the start of the whole deal. Yeah. So I'm, I'm two blocks from a house that was built in 1636, Yeah. right? So folks came here- it was the white people and the Wampanoags, right? And eventually right. the Wampanoags got pissed off 
And then they started fighting with each other. And the football team in my town was actually called the Marauders for years. And it because used to that, be, yeah. yeah. And it used to be like a, like a native American was the mascot. And eventually right. it got changed to a pirate, which makes zero sense, but you know, it's better. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, I mean, look, man, like we weren't big on pirates, but it's better than like, re- than like celebrating that aspect of history. Yeah, but, I mean, It makes sense know. if you're in the, if you're in the Mediterranean or you're in the, yeah, bingo, the like Mexico, or not exactly that. here, you know, it yeah. didn't like, didn't, there weren't too many buccaneers in Boston, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, like the, but the whole idea there, you think about these people, right? They're scared in the wilderness, right? And they've got nothing but themselves to protect themselves. And so I, I, I think we have this view in this country of government and of law as kind of like that fortress. And you've got the good people inside who are protected, and then you've got the marauders outside. And you even look at the way, for example, that... Uh, the protests over uh, the killing of George George Floyd and over Breonna Taylor and you know too many names to to, to yeah way to, too many to, to go over in one and episode. And by the way, those are just the ones that got the media attention. Just saying, exactly. There's way more. Exactly, than that. yeah. Bingo. And so you look at the way that that the that the protests are covered in. I mean, I would say let's be real here, right wing media specifically, and. Um, and you look at the way they're covered in 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 some of these outlets, and it's very much again like the marauders, the folks who are out there to to like other, you know light your Wendy's other, on yeah. fire. Yeah, the other bingo, bingo. You know, it was like, and it's always been you know if we get rid of you know all the witches, all the British, all the communists, like it goes. Yeah, witches, you know, there's, witches. There's, how far are you from Salem? <laughs> so like, I'm like, you know, we're close to that too. We've got, yeah, I mean, we've got a pretty gnarly history here, man. Yeah. We're burning oh, witches, yeah. killing natives, you know? And yeah. so it's like, but, but I do think that like we, we as a society have to dewire ourselves from this and really say to ourselves, like the job of government isn't to like, make sure somebody doesn't come and take your TV. You know, that's not the job. The job no. of government is to care for people, you know, right. and I'm here. That, that might mean that might mean finding somebody who took your TV and, and punishing True. you for that. Absolutely. But, but that's a big part of the problem is that is that people view government, um, you know, like a team tactic, like a team game or whatever, like the NFL. But the but the reality is, is that, um, you know, Tom Brady always sucked. I just wanted to throw that out because you're in Massachusetts. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. no. Well, you could say that now because he works for Tampa. He's in Tampa, so <laughs> I'm a Broncos fan, so you know it's always a thing. All but, right, but, man. But the but the issue is, is like um, the government. Um, the only purpose for government should be to do things that are in the interests of the people. That's it. Like that's the only thing that they should be involved in at all. Like that's that's all it is. Um, and and they 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 that's the only thing they don't do. That's the crazy part is like you sit there, you're like, wow, you know, but like uh, we should have almost nobody die at the hands of police. It should almost never happen. That's not to say that it wouldn't make the job more difficult for police. It would. It definitely would. Um, But that's their job. Like that's what they signed up for. And there's this thing that, you know, that our, our forefathers fought to get to get independence from England and. You know, that King George son of a bitch and and they fought and then they created this this constitution and a few years later they they brought a bill of rights that included the right to a trial the right to to uh, 
you know, to a, a trial in front of a jury of your peers, a right to face your accusers, a right, uh, you know, these are rights that are enshrined in the founding document of our country. And every time a police officer kills somebody out in the public, they violate at least three of those rights, the fifth, sixth, seventh, or the sixth, seventh, eighth amendment. They, they violate at least those three, violate those. Um, and that's not to say it's not ever justified because sometimes it will be justified. Maybe even most of the time it's justified, but if you're going to take somebody's constitutional rights away from them in permanence, meaning you kill them, you deny them their right to trial, their right to, you know, all those rights that I just, you know, was going through and you deny them those rights, the right, you know, you're also denying them their right to life, their right to, uh, their right to property, all the other things that are enshrined in the constitution just by killing them. Um, you better have a goddamn good reason for it. You better have a really good reason for it. And it better not be that, oh, I didn't know I was kneeling on his neck too long. It better not be, um, oh, well, he reached too quickly for his wallet, so I thought it was a gun. It better not be, oh, he refused to show his hand, so I shot him because it could have been a gun. It can't be things that are imaginary, that are in their heads that they make up about like what this possibility is in their head that it could have been like, that's not how you can run a society like this. You just simply can't do it. Yeah. I'll tell you like, so I've, I've really, I am in a weird spot here because I have black friends and I have friends who are cops. Right. And, and <laughs> so any black cop friends, <laughs> did you know? No, <laughs> I don't. I, a, there was a guy I hung out with a long time ago who uh, who was, but uh, but yeah, yeah, but like, and so you know, when I talk to my black friends, their 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 bigger thing is that they're they have enough negative experiences with police on the whole, yeah, right, for sure. Where when they see uh, a black man shot, it really resonates with them, of and course, they, you know. And then on the flip side. The, the cops who, uh, the cops who I know are, you know, they're, look, they get hated every day, regardless of whether somebody gets shot or not, you know? Yeah. And so you build up this resistance or this mentality, like I've got to get my job done to keep the community safe and I've got to just block this shit out, you know? And that's kind of yeah. where they, where they come from. And I think that the thing that nobody ever talks about, right, is that when everybody rushes to the defense of a policeman who shot somebody, for example, seven times in the back, right? right. Who was unarmed, right? When right. everybody rushes to the defense of that person, they're making all the good cops jobs harder because now all of a sudden, every the narrative is now that this guy represents good policing. And so every right. other cop now has a choice, which is either to like enter into the fray or stay out, you know? And it's almost like when there's a plane crash, right? People don't rush to the defense of the pilot or blame the traffic controller or the air traffic controller, or blame the people, you know, blame like the flight attendant, the mechanic, you know? right? The mechanic they they say they, they go, they look at the plane crash and they try to piece together what's wrong. And then they figure out, okay, how do we not have this happen again? Right. And, and so I, I take the same, stance here which is like you can't call you can't improve law enforcement at, which you know you can't make good law enforcement by never improving it and you can't improve it by 
not at least admitting that there are some mistakes made here and there. And yeah, you know, well, on and- my website, I talk about in, in one of those things that in in the state of Wisconsin, which is you know apropos to the Jacob Blake thing, in the state of Wisconsin, from the time that they they all of the police shootings are reviewed by a fire and police board, and those are elected people um, that are elected uh, by by the police and fire union people, right? So that these boards are elected by the members of the whatever. Those fire and police boards, um, it's I forget the exact number, but it, but it started in like 1885 or some crazy, like a long, long time ago, in the 1800s for sure. And between then and at least up to 2013, they had never ruled a, a shooting by a police officer to be unjustified. Interesting. Never. Interesting. Not once. So what's the likelihood that every time everybody, anybody ever got shot in by a police officer in the state of Wisconsin for over a hundred years, it was always a justified shooting. Yeah. What are the, yeah, you know, it's, yeah, you know, it's so funny. I'm sitting here talking to you about all these things and don't take this the wrong way, but you sound like the guy that every Democrat thinks they're voting for. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. I know. Right. Like, like it's, it's, and, and I'm with you. I'm in the same buck. I'm in, I'm in the same boat where, uh, you know, you go from, you go from Republican, you can't quite call yourself a Democrat, but some of the, you know, but, but in general, like idea for idea, there's a lot you agree with. So where I'm going with this on the cop. Yeah, please go for it. Is that there's, there's, you know, like you talk about good cops and man, I wish that was a real thing. But, but, but the reality is, is every time one of these things happens, how many cops do you see on the news or whatever saying, Hey, that was wrong. That's it's, it's the, do you know, the tough part about it is they'll say it in private. Of course they will, but that's bullshit. That's cowardice. And if you're gonna, if you want to like, cause you're right that it does make the job harder on the quote unquote good cops. Right. But if those cops really cared about making their job um, easier and better, then they should be the ones stepping up and talking about how shitty it is that this other guy killed these people. But they have this thin blue line thing and they won't ever talk about it. You know, and and I've had um, quite a few cop friends in the past and I don't have any cop friends anymore because because these things come up. And just as passionate as I am talking about it on this podcast, that's how I talk to them about it. And they don't like it. And, 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 you know, because they see the world as this us versus them thing. And, and frankly, that can't be how it's done. And like, not if we're going to have that free, free, you know, if we're, if we're going to actually talk about liberty and justice for all, if we're going to actually talk about the land of the free and the home of the brave, and we're not going to be bullshitting ourselves, then we can't have police departments that see the public that they serve as the enemy. We can't, we cannot do that. And those cops should be held to a higher standard than regular civilians because they take that job freely. They take an oath to defend, uh, to uphold and defend the Constitution that contains those those uh, amendments in the Bill of Rights that I was already talking about. And they take an oath to protect and serve the public. And the public includes people who are uh, accused of or suspected of committing a crime. Those are also members of the public. And if they take that oath freely, which they do. They're not drafted. They take that oath freely. They take a paycheck. They take training. They do all these other things. 
they better goddamn be responsible when things go bad. And they better be they better be hung up for it when, you know, just like a, a civilian would or even worse, because they have taken that responsibility. And I feel the same way about politicians. When politicians are caught doing bribes or just not doing a good job, you know, they need to be made an example of. They need to go to prison. Um, the same thing goes with, with uh, you know, not for doing a bad job, obviously, but, but like when they get caught taking bribes or doing illegal stuff, they need to go to prison and they rarely do. Um, it, the same for CEOs of big companies and stuff like that. When, you know, like HSBC Bank has been caught multiple times laundering money for drug cartels and all this other stuff and nobody ever goes to jail. The Wells Fargo has been caught doing committing fraud a, a handful of times now and they pay a, a fine that's a, a fraction of what they've made committing the fraud. And they just move on about their business. It becomes a cost of doing business. And nobody ever goes to prison. And as far as I'm concerned, if you can go to prison for stealing a dollar, um, you know, or, or stealing a, a candy bar or, or stealing $100 from a, from a you know, a, a liquor store or whatever, and you could go to jail for 10 years for doing that. Well, if you steal a billion dollars as a CEO of a bank, then your ass should be in prison for life. You should be in prison for life. That's it. And if we start doing that, we start actually jailing cops that even if it's an error, even if they didn't mean to kill that guy or even, you know, somehow there was some big mistake made. Sorry. Sorry. You still kill a person. Like if I run a red light in error and I side, side punch a car and kill a family, I'm still going to jail. Right. It's manslaughter, but I'll go to jail. Right. Um, it's an accident, but like, this is the responsibility you take when you seek a position of power, whether it's you're, you're a, you're a, a priest or you're a cop or you're a teacher or you're a, a, a politician or anything like that. You seek these positions of power and you seek that position of power and you abuse that power or you make major mistakes or, or, or judgment calls that are bad and you harm people that you're supposed to be serving then sorry, you go to jail. Like that has to be how it does it. And if we started actually doing that, I think a lot of these problems actually work themselves out. We wouldn't have the economy going, you know, boom to bust like it is. Um, we wouldn't have all these issues because people would be afraid to go to prison. I, I've got a question for you because I had the exact same discussion with somebody on the exact opposite end of the argument, which is that uh, their, their stance, this is actually the producer, Big uh -huh. Gino is going to be listening to this as he's at it. Hi, Big Gino. Yeah, hey, you, there you go. He <laughs> says he says hi back. I'm sure. And so his he definitely takes more the stance of like you know the I I don't want to par I don't want to like I don't want to butcher his philosophy. He'll, but he he's probably more on the law and order side where gun owners own guns to protect their property, for example, right? Yeah, I, and, and I'm I'm an avid gun owner. Yeah, and I'm, and a, the thing, I'm a heavy supporter of the Second Amendment. And the thing I said to him is I said, we wouldn't have so many instances of cops shooting people in error and people shooting other people in error if we had a society that actually took care of, of the least fortunate, right? And of didn't course. put these people in, in the first place. It's kind of, of So I'll throw that at you. Do you think like chicken or egg question here, is, the, is, it, is, it, is it a case where if we just focused on a society that took care of the least fortunate, 
we wouldn't have these issues of violence. We wouldn't have to worry about uh, overly aggressive policing. We wouldn't have to worry about people dying at the hands of police because we wouldn't have so many people getting in front of them. That's correct. We would have a far, and that's where the defund the police thing, I think makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, in an ideal society and in where, where things are actually, where our government actually works for our best interests, like we've been talking about, in a society like that, police would be far less necessary. I, you know, so, so defund the police, you know, chicken or the egg, like you said, um, you know, like we need to make the society better first. Right. And then, and then start dialing the police down as it goes. But again, when you're talking about these, these entrenched interests, I mean, for example, one of the major, um, Back when California legalized cannabis, like actually legalized it for for uh, uh, recreational use a few years ago, which it was actually a bad idea, but but you know that's a whole other subject. Um, when that happened, the the biggest uh, supporters or the, the some of the biggest funding opposing that that referendum came from police unions. You know, they they want to keep this the way it is because that's good for them. And that's the point. When you understand sort of the machinations of, of, of how this works, when you, you look at the, you know, the prison industrial complex and you understand that you need, I mean, Joseph Kennedy, you know who that guy is. Um, this son of a bitch, when he was a DA, um, you know, uh, whatever, because he, he used to be a, a DA, a prosecutor. And so he, like probably two or three years ago, they asked him about legalizing cannabis in Massachusetts. And he said it was a bad idea. And they asked him why, even though it had complete popular support, they asked him why and paraphrasing what he said was, well, when you talk to cops and everything else, you start to realize that the distinct smell of marijuana makes for an easy way to justify um, searching somebody's vehicle or house or whatever, and then you can find other stuff that they're doing wrong. You can find their guns that they have illegally, or you can have whatever. And so the way he said it was, it keeps the criminals off the street or whatever like that. But but the reality is, is what he just said when he said that was, we can violate by the smell of this of this this you know very odor odoriferous, odoriferous or whatever uh, plant. We can violate their constitutional rights and justify um, you know uh, searches and seizures and all kinds of other stuff. He's, he's literally talking about violating people's rights and justifying it by the smell of a product, they, of a flower that they have that's illegal. And, and, you know, my nephew was a, uh, he was in the Marines and he was a MP and he saw it all the time. He had, he's a dog handler, but um, he would get called out um, to traffic stops around the base at Camp Pendleton um, and then asked to have the dog sniff for marijuana or something like that. And he would never have his dog do it. And so the, the people were always, the other cops, the MPs were always bummed when my, my nephew would show up. Cause I, I, I was kind of a father figure for him cause his dad wasn't around. So I, I raised like, you know, what you're he- hearing me say, I was telling him for years and years and years. Uh, so, um, you know, he would go out there and then he, he'd be like, no, it's good. No, we got another, you know, dog didn't alert. So we're good. And then, then they go on their way. But what they were hoping to get when they call the cop, the, the dog, the canine guy out, was that the, you know, because some of the others would do it, is they would do what's called a false alert. They would get the dog to alert, um, you know, without needing to smell the actual product, which would justify the search of the car. So um, it's not even that that you would actually even have to smell the product. 
It's just the threat of saying or, or the ability to say that you smelled it is a way to justify the violation of their rights in court. And that is some super dangerous shit. Like that is not a thing that should be happening. And, and you know, so, yeah, in a, in a truly just society, we would, you know, we would have far fewer police because they'd be far less necessary. But that includes we would need a, a you know, much better health care system where people could get mental health care that didn't cost them an arm and a leg included. Um, you know, and not feel the stress of needing to pay for, uh, you know, their healthcare when they, you know, when they're having a tough time like that, uh, that adds to it. But you also need, um, you know, a much better education, better funded education and more priority put on education, which I always cringe a little bit when I say that, because that's another George Carlin bit. He always talks about politicians always talking about education, education. And so it, it just sticks in the back of my head because I love George Carlin and I'm a politician now. And I'm like, oh. I hate hearing them myself say that, but it's the reality. The, the reality is, is that we do need better education. We need, we need, um, we need a floor like the bottom of the bottom economically needs to be still good enough to have like a basic needs met, like a, a, a studio apartment and like electricity, like your basic stuff and food. And then the top doesn't have to be $200 billion. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying we have to be equal. I'm not a communist. I'm not saying we all have to be the same, but I'm saying that there's no reason why in a country like ours, the richest country in the history of the planet, that we can't have the bottom treated with dignity and respect and, and, and kept in a, you know, out of, out of homelessness and the slums and however you want to put it. And, and the top would just, you know, I mean, frankly, as far as I'm concerned, and this does sound really hard left, but I, I don't really care. Cause I think it's, it's true. Um, billionaires shouldn't be a thing like that to have a thousand million dollars. I don't even know anybody who has 20 million dollars. Like, you know, to have a thousand million dollars. I mean, why, what are you going to do? Like, what, what, what do you need a thousand million dollars for? You're going to buy how, how many yachts you want, you know, like, what are we doing? So, so I, that's how I like, from a, you know, I just don't think, I think that the, the danger of having billionaires in a society is exactly what we see right now, which is not that it's not that it causes directly to have the poor or whatever. Cause like, you know, ultimately I wouldn't really give a shit if somebody had $200 billion, as long as the poor are all taken care of and everybody's good, like, you know, have as much money as you want, like from a, from that point of view. But what happens and what, and the real danger of it is what we see right now, which is when you have that much money, you become a threat to democracy itself because now you can influence the government in your favor. You can pay off politicians. I mean, if you have as much money as, as I mean, if you have even a billion dollars, you can buy enough votes in Congress for anything you want. Um, you know, and, and like if you were so inclined to do so. And, and so that's the danger is to allow that sort of exorbitant wealth in, in so few hands um, in that way is dangerous for all of us. And it, and it breaks our democracy. It makes it so that we regular people don't even have a voice in our own country. And that's why we have to address it. That's why we have to not allow this, uh, this massive, uh, you know, concentration of wealth um, is, is, is to protect our actual country and our democracy. It's not really, it's not a jealousy thing like, Oh, whatever. No, it's, it's like, I, I want to make sure that the people of this country have a voice and yeah. it matters, you know? So second to last question then. Yeah. If 
folks want to hop on the Steve Cox bandwagon, where can they go? Well, you go to voteforcox.com and right there, I'm going to be redesigning it in the next couple of months before the campaign kicks back off in, in early 2021. Um, but, but, uh, um, that's, that's, I mean, dude, I have 30,000 words of philosophy and policy on that website. I wrote it all myself. Um, I sourced it for data all myself because, you know, one thing is, is I, I really hate the cookie color cutter politician. And, you know, there's certain politicians that won't tell you the thing that they know you won't like to hear. So last question yeah. there then is, you know, you're a guy who does predictions and I'm not going to do the predictable thing, which is, you know, this is going to come out two weeks before the election. So I'm not yeah. going to ask you who's going to win, but 2021 rolls around. What does the world look like? What do you think happens? 2021. Oh, like what's your, you, you have anything on the calendar or no? Is it like total fog? It, well, so I have like different, this is going to sound kind of schizophrenic, but I have different voices in my head. Right. Uh-huh. And there's always the voice that, that, that I try to ignore because it's this, it's a really scary one. Yeah. Um, but I don't see this election going well, regardless of who wins. I think, Mm-hmm. I think if Biden wins, um, half the country is going to be super pissed off. If Trump wins, half the country is going to be super pissed off. And um, I don't think either of them deserve to win. I I'd agree with you definitely. I don't I don't see the temperature getting dialed down at all. Again, if you're interested in learning more about Steve's platform, you can. Go to vote for Cox again with an X.com or find him on Twitter at Real Steve Cox, also with an X. Links to Steve's site and some additional references, as per the break, can also be found in the episode section of You Don't Have to Yell's website, ydhty.com. Now, like other candidates who've been on this podcast before, Steve is part of a growing movement that's not happy with America's two major parties and their tendency to run on wedge issues as opposed to solving any of the problems that ail us. And I am telling you, 2020 is going to be the final decade of America's two-party duopoly. Multipartisan democracy is coming. People want more choices, and it's a matter of all of us following Steve's cue and getting off the sidelines to make this happen. Now, if you're a resident of California and like what Steve is saying, you can also listen to last week's episode with Californians for Electoral Reform, which is an organization seeking to implement proportional representation in the state and create more room for independent candidates like Steve to win office. So check that out. And as with every episode, music courtesy of Norway's finest, Quellertak. Adam Yaffe is YDHTY's editorial advisor, and YDHTY is produced in the hollowed-out trunk of a mighty willow tree by the big Gino, Jason Keebler Putney. All else is courtesy of moi, Dan Sally. Adios. Adios.